Well, good morning. Good morning to you. It's lovely to be here with you again. And um, I'm kind of embarrassed because I, I can't remember, but one of the last times I was here, I think I, I set the record in length. And that's never a good thing to hold the record in, in length of a message. At least Chris Schroeder teases me about that. I think he's exaggerating. He never does exaggerate, but when he does, it's, it's something else. Um, let me just pull a few wires together, but as we do so, I'd like to uh, begin this morning by telling you a little bit of a story. And it's a, a story that probably has attached to it my shame And yet this story will illustrate the topic of this morning, which is the fear of the Lord. I'm not sure if you've heard many subjects or messages on the fear of the Lord, and I hadn't either until the Lord had me um, study it. It was was a time when, when I had all the nine children at the house. Today we only have two. It's quite weird, actually. Um... You know, there's no one, there, there's only two kids to blame now instead of nine. And, you know, I don't have to sort through he did it, she did it, and chase the, the maze around the house about who left there, whatever, uh, in such and such a place. But back when we had nine kids, we were, um, we were very frequent members of Sam's Club because um, we pretty much lived there. And uh, so in the course of time, I got to know them very well, and they got to know me very well. And, and over that course of time, um, I would uh, pick up their little credit card, and they would give me lots of cash back every year because I spent, like, the whole bank at Sam's Club. And so one day, I go over there, and we're going to get our little check from Sam's Club. And, and uh, it's a lot. They pay me out these $100 bills. And I go, thank you, and I take them over to the bank, and, and my little son with me, now it's not William, he was uh, Patrick, and, and he was younger than William was today, and so we're at the bank, and the teller goes, oh, oh Mr. Price, it's nice to see you, and so she counts out the money, and I said, I think there's such, uh, such and such a number there. She goes, well, I, I, I think you might have miscounted. I think one of the $100 bills stuck to another. There's actually $100 extra, and my son looks at me like this. <laughs> what are we going to do, Dad? And in that one moment, I said, we're going to take it back. And poor guy, he goes, okay, if we have to, I guess. So we get in the car, we go back over to Sam's Club, I go to the little uh, lady that's at the front desk, and I said, ma'am, we were just here, and we, you, you gave us our refund and our rebate, and, and you actually paid us uh, $100 extra, so we're bringing the $100 back to you. Now, I wasn't expecting much, but maybe a little confetti and some balloons, <laughs> at least a free Coke, nothing, absolutely nothing. And she goes, oh, thank you very much, ka that was it. Zippo. Not a attaboy. Good job. Nice, honest person. I went out to the car. I called my wife. Did you ever do, did you ever do this? This is bad. This is bad stuff. I called my wife. I said, yeah, we were just at Sam's Club. They paid us an extra hundred. And, and you know, we were turning. Nothing happened. No manager came out. And there's my son looking right at me. And I'm going, but we do those things because it's the right thing to do, right, honey? Like, I'm convincing her. 
Now, that's a great, embarrassing, funny story of my lack of the fear of the Lord. Oh, I did the right thing, but I didn't have the right reasons. And the fear of the Lord, this concept that is sort of um, uh, uh, strategically talked about in the Old Testament, has a, has a unique quality to it that drives us to do the right thing for the right reasons. And I would suggest to you, as we talked yesterday, that this is what we're missing. Now, I wanted to take this hour to expand that concept and do, do a couple of things with you. The introduction we've done, but I wanted to talk about four areas, and they are its distinction, its depiction, its description, and its definition. So if you're planning on lunch today, just plan on staying till 3 o'clock this afternoon, and we will finish. I'm kidding, of course. Now let's go to a couple of scriptures in, in this particular one, and it's just, just to give you a little flavor of this idea, uh, its significance in the Bible. Uh, as you remember, there are two sister verses here, cousins as it were, and they say uh, Psalm 1, 11, 10. Now we'll turn to some scriptures, but for this, this, this segment, I've put them on the screen behind you. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think we understand that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And good understanding, and a good understanding of all those who keep his command, <coughs> excuse me, his commandments. Now, this is a, a poetic device in Hebrew, and it's a, it's a parallelism. And what he's trying to do is basically, it's somewhat of a synthetic parallelism. He's saying one thing, but he's slightly expanding it with the other. I need a drink. <laughs> Thank you. Just for the record, it's a drink of water. I realize it's being broadcast on Zoom. I want you to know on Zoom, it's water. All right, now I lost my train of thought. Okay, here we go. Okay, so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and by the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, um, there is, uh, in the field of philosophy or the study of knowledge, right, there's just these concepts, and there's really big terms. There's things like epistemology. I didn't know what that was. I had to go Google it. Right? Epistemology and, and, and uh, there's like four terms in this, in the science of the field of, of philosophy. But basically what it boils down to is how you view life. How you view life. And the Bible calls that the wisdom of God. So there's one uh, competing way that you can view life. It is the, uh, it is the uh, evolutionary view, whereby you view things as totally naturalistic. What do we mean by that? That our measurement of everything that you see is only by what you can see, touch, feel, taste, hear. Your senses. And if you can't Put it in your senses, it doesn't exist, which is stupid. I, I've studied sciences all of my life. That There are so many things out there that you can't sense, but exist. You ever hear the atom? Kind of holds you together. It's kind of important. 
And so, so it, it just, the, the, the whole premise seems to be odd. But when you take that premise and you expand it to this and to that, what happens is God is excluded from the equation. Therefore, we are just a, a, a collection of chance activity that somehow coalesced to create something so complex as the lungs that you use and the, uh, the heart that beats in your chest. Now, that's an unusual worldview, but it is a common one. There are other worldviews, but what the scripture is saying is if you want the correct worldview, if you want the right epistemology, it will be by the fear of the Lord, the wisdom of God. So as you study, as you go and you study, this is what you'll have to navigate. This is what you'll have to sort out. And it really helps if somebody comes along in your life and says, this is what you're up against. You got all these worldviews over here and they're going to be pretty much without God. And when you get to the one that deals with God, that's the wisdom, the fear of the Lord one, it actually, everything seems to make much more holistic sense. It comes together with completeness. How do you explain the evil of man? How do you explain the condition of the world? How do you explain all the chaos that you see? Well, you can explain it by the coronavirus getting out of control in somebody's lab in China, or you can actually look at it from a Christian worldview. Studying the Word of God to see how He actually has orchestrated with sovereign threads all through history. Now that's what makes sense. So the fear of the Lord begins with this. Now there's a famous passage in Ecclesiastes 12.13. And it reads, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Now, if you've not read Ecclesiastes, it's like the book on philosophy. Oh, great. Why would I read that? Well, it's not too hard. It's only like 12 chapters, and some of them are only like 10 verses long. You could whip through that baby in about 10 minutes. You may not learn anything, but you could whip through it in 10 minutes. Now, at the very end, at the very last verse, after the preacher, the uh, it's a very complex Hebrew word. I can't even pronounce it. But the preacher goes through his whole ordeal, and, and he says, you know, I've tried this, and I've tried this, and there's, you know, and there's really only a couple things to realize that, you know, God's giving you a lot of things to enjoy, so then enjoy them, because pretty much life is all vanity. You know, do it with the fear of the Lord. And then he comes to the end, and he says, the final thing is this, fear God and keep his commandments For this is man's all. This is what your sum and substance is. So the fear of the Lord is right near, how should we say, the top one. Not two, not three. Hi, Brian. How are you? (laughs) It's been a long time. (laughs) So it's it's right there, isn't it? It's right there. So the fear of the Lord has a, a real primacy, a real focal point, a centerpiece of the thinking of God. You say, well, Steve, you're boring me. Okay, fine. I want you to turn to Isaiah. Lest you think I'm just like pulling this out of the hat, I want you to see a couple of the words of the prophets, Isaiah specifically. Now, in Isaiah chapter 8, this is a, this is kind of a big deal because um, there is a huge threat of impending powers, foreign powers, coming upon the Israel and removing them. And that's the whole theme of Isaiah, right? And so there, he's constantly reiterating this theme. Now, as it would happen, the people in the region were beginning to, to, uh, uh, develop fears of, of these foreign powers. And, uh, they would say things like, oh, there's a conspiracy out there. We gotta be careful of the conspiracy. 
Sounds familiar to me, I guess. Don't we have conspiracy theorists today? Anyway, and so, so we have this sort of political unrest. Now, this is where the passage comes in that I'll read to you now. Verse 11, for the, spe- for the Lord spoke thus to me. So the Lord is telling Isaiah, he says, with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Oh, well, how are they walking? What are they doing? Well, this is what he, they're doing. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people calls a conspiracy. Don't get freaked out by everything they say that's going on around you. Don't, don't, don't buy into this sort of mantra, this sort of, uh, news flash. Listen, you should understand something, Isaiah. Read it with me nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. You might hear the foreign powers are mounting to come against you, but I need you to do something else, Isaiah, God's spokesperson. This is what I need you to do. Look at it. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, set apart. Look at this. Him you, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. See what he's saying? You see, the people of Israel, you're all worried about everybody else coming upon you. But if there's one person you should fear above all else, it's the Lord himself right there. And it tells me something. He is correcting the people of God in that day. He's correcting them, getting them to turn from being uh, so in love with the idols. That's a huge thing. They, the children of Israel loved idols from day one when they got out of Egypt. And they loved idols all the way through. And you don't see idols actually absent from their history until after they're brought back into the land of Israel. They say post-exilic times. When the exiles came back, that's Nehemiah and Ezra times. That's that's several hundred years. And here he's saying, now listen, you're going to hear this and they're going to, people are going to uh, be uh, wor- worried about it, but this is not to make you fear what they fear. But you need to fear the right person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, saints, listen, there are a lot of things that we can fear today. Death, I don't speak of that lightly. Many of my friends have become, have succumbed to the ravages of the COVID virus. I don't say it lightly. My, my father passed away, not from COVID, from just aging. We can fear um, our health. We can fear the social injustice and, and, and the crime and the assault on the Capitol. We can fear so many things. But are we so neglectful, so oblivious to the real lesson? Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. This is what he says. Fear the Lord. Now, there's one other passage I want... Oh, sorry. One other passage I want you to see in this regard, and it's in Isaiah 11, okay? And this, this is, again, just giving distinction to the concept. All right, Isaiah chapter 11. Now, as Isaiah would have his documents recorded... He'll come to various places where we'll switch over to talking about the ultimate one to come and reign, and that would be the Messiah. And, of course, that was the Lord Jesus Christ, as indicated not only by his statements, but by his miracles, and most of all by his resurrection and therefore crowning in heaven. But but the whole I, the whole direction that that teaching is going is that the Messiah will actually reign as emperor of the world. Did you know that, right? 
That's an amazing concept, which is why Satan has used various individuals to try to have world empires. And, and remember, Daniel outlined several of them. And even into the uh, 20th century, we had individuals who wanted to have the world empire, right? And there's a coming day in which there will be an individual who's titled Antichrist who will seek to have world control in an empire to be the emperor of the world but they're all fake they're all fake until the christ comes the jesus christ who was raised from the dead who actually has the credentials to hold that title he'll reign now this passage in in chapter 11 describes some of those features it's really amazing you know children will play with poisonous snakes now that's something we like to do Hey, Dad, can we go by by the snake pit? Sure, honey, go right ahead. Put your hand in the hole, it's safe. Right? No, we would never do that. We would be hauled off for child something or other, right? No, no, but when the Savior is on the throne, world empire, emperor of the world, he'll conduct his regime so that human beings and animal and the animal world will submit to his rulership. That's a great day. That's a fantastic day. Now, what are the credentials of this Messiah? What is it that gets him uh, the right to reign? Well, that's what's described here in chapter 11, first three verses. There shall come forth a rod uh, from the stem of Jesse. That's poetic language to describe the Lord Jesus, a root out of dry ground, Isaiah 53. Notice this. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Oh, the Spirit of the Lord. Now, what is that? Well, that's Spirit of the Lord, third person of the Trinity. And sort of the imagery of the, of the day when the Lord Jesus was on the earth on his first, his first appearance, where the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and after that, he demonstrated his miraculous power, which was to um, pretty much uh, uh, verify his deity, being God. So the Spirit of the Lord, God, upon him in full dimension and display. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't God before that. It was just now demonstrable through the power of God himself. Now, the Spirit of the Lord has certain qualities about him. Read them in verse 2. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Well, that's convenient because wisdom and understanding comes by the fear of the Lord. Right? We just read that, Proverbs 10.9. Uh, and then it says, the Spirit of counsel and might. So not only is he able to, to be powerful in his, in his strength and executing justice, but he actually knows how to solve the problems. Don't you love it when somebody knows how to solve the problem? You know, i got to go talk to so-and-so. They always have the right answer. You know, well, this is the Lord. Now look at the last one, the, the, the third couplet, the spirit of knowledge and look, the fear of the Lord. Wait a minute. Out of all the things that could be written by Isaiah, one of the credentials, one of the verifying elements of his resume is that he fears the Lord. That must be pretty important. It's part of the personality of the king to come. Yeah, exactly. So I want you to see the value, the importance of the fear of the Lord in this segment. But let's move on to have a little depiction. Let's get a a picture of this. Now that's going to come to you from the book of Job. So you want to turn to Job. And uh, now the song is going through each of our heads. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, right? I have to play that in my head. So kids, learn that well. 
It helps you decades later. Now, what I want you to see here is um, sort of the big picture conversation. And when we do so, the big picture conversation begins the section and ends the section. And in the middle, we have the details. So let's read the opening. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz. Now, it's very difficult to know where that was. Actually, some would say it may have been in the land of Edom, which is today kind of the southern part of Jordan. And it says, uh, whose name was Job, and the man was blameless and upright. And notice this, in the opening verse, What or how is he described? One who feared the Lord and shunned evil. Now, that tells you immediately that the fear of the Lord involves something that you got to get away from, and that's evil. But there is a certain attitude that Job had towards God that was fundamental to his existence. And you say, well, what attitude, what attitude is that? Well, that's the details. And I want you to see that in verse 2. They had seven sons and three daughters. So he's my role model. We had nine. He had ten. It was really nice. Also... His possessions were 7,000 sheep. Okay, so 7,000. 3,000 camels, that's now 10,000. 500 yoke of oxen, 10,500. 500 female donkeys, now that's 11,000. And a very large household. You bet it took a lot of people to take care of 11,000 animals. Absolutely. All right, and so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, look at this. And his sons would go to feast on their appointed day. What day is that? Birthday. Birthday. Right? That's my theory. And it says this, uh, each on their appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. What do we call that? A birthday party. Okay? You with me? Right? Birthday celebration. All right. So now probably mom and dad came too. We don't know. It's the text doesn't say. But look at verse five. And so it was. Don't you love that scripture so dull? And so and so the next thing that happened was this. When the days of feasting had run their course. What days of feasting? I only had one day. You know, he had like a week. All right. That Job would send and sanctify them and would rise early in the morning and offer, read it closely, offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Okay, stop right there. All right, so how many kids were there? Ten. All right, it says he offered burnt offerings for the number of them all. That means that he offered one animal per kid, correct? Okay, so how many is that? Well, that's ten. Ten what? Probably bulls, right? Probably bulls, Very the most expensive animal. How much does a bull go for today? Well, it depends on the type of bull. But we're going to say, for the sake of math, $1,000, which is low. Okay, so for each birthday... They spent, he spent how much? $10,000. All right. And how many kids were there? 10. So how much is that? $100,000. He's dropping a hundred grand every year for the kids. And that's not even a present. What's he dropping a hundred K for? Well, here. It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. Did you notice it says in their heart? That means that they never uh, articulate. They never said it. They never told dad what was on their minds. And he, and he never said you shouldn't say that. It, he just worried that this might have been going on internally. And because it was internal, he was concerned that this would be offensive to God. And so he was willing to take whatever it was, a hundred K perhaps, and spend it on his kids just in case. They offended God. Now, that's the fear of the Lord. Can you see it? 
You see, he's doing the right thing for the right reasons, even when no one might care about those reasons. Now, if you think that's impressive, it was also captivating the attention of God. How do I know that? The next paragraph. Because it says here, now verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now this is very interesting interesting discussion. Because um, when it says that Satan was cast out of heaven, Jesus said that, we, we kind of think, well, that's a one and done. You can't go back through that door. Not so. It appears that God would allow accessibility in the, in the unseen world, the angelic world, even of the fallen angelic world, to come into his throne room. You say, Steve, can you prove that? That's the only verse in the Bible. No, no, it's actually in, what is it, First Kings, I think it's 22. Do you remember that? That's a famous story. It's Ahab and Jehoshaphat. They're father-in-laws. They're related. I, they should never have been related. I mean, I think the daughter of Ahab was Athaliah. She's not, don't name your dog Athaliah. That's a bad name, okay? She was wicked mother. She killed all the grandkids at one point. What a mom, what a grandma. Hey, grandma, how you doing? I'm fine, sweetie. Come over and sit by grandma today. We'll have a good time. You know, just, right? So anyway, they were related. And, and, uh, Ahab one day says to Jehoshaphat, hey, Joe, buddy. Uh, this is a loose paraphrase from the SSV, the Steve Standard Version, okay? And so he goes, hey, Joe, buddy, why don't we go over to Ramoth Gilead and we're going to take him out because the Syrians are taking my city. You with me? Joe goes, absolutely. You're, we're like blood relatives. You know what I'm saying? And he goes, oh, fantastic. But Joe goes, now, is there a prophet of the Lord that maybe we could ask around here? Oh, I got prophets, Joe. Don't worry, I got prophets. Brings in about 400 of them. They all go, oh, king, you're the best to go and get them. You'll win, win, win. Go fight, win. And Joe goes, but is there a prophet of the Lord? Ahab goes, well, I got one of those guys. I don't like them. He always says things that mean hurts my feelings. Well, do you mind if we talk to him? Okay, so they bring Micaiah in. Micaiah, he's, he's sarcastic in this first sentence. But tell us what God has told you, Micaiah. The two kings are sitting next to each other. Ahab tells them this. Micaiah goes, have a good time. Go to Ramoth Gilead, you'll win. Ahab goes, see, I told you, he's always lying. He always says stuff like this. Tell us really what God said. Ahab, <laughs> he's kind of a nut. He goes, tell us really what God says. He goes, I'll tell you what God said. There was a council, and God was presiding over it, and they were trying to figure out how to get you over to Ramoth Gilead so you could be executed. And an evil spirit said, I will, our lying spirit said, I will send a lie so that the 400 prophets that Ahab calls for counsel will say the lie and convince him to go. Now that's pretty telling, isn't it? You think about the unseen world, what's going on there, so this is not unusual. Now, in the conversation, back to Job, in the conversation, this is the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro the earth, on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, listen to this, have you, have you now considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth. This is really in big praise, isn't it? There's no one like this guy. Really? Yeah. 
a blameless and upright man. Now wait, okay, so blameless, upright. What's the third thing he notices about him? Read it, read it. Who fears God and shuns evil. Do you think that maybe this was a big deal to the heart of God? That this little thing that's described in verses two through through uh, four was, uh, or two through seven, really meant something to God. That God, that Job would take the effort and energy, the expense, just in case in an unknown moment somebody might have cursed God. He wanted to cover that with an atoning sacrifice. That he's caring about the things of God, but but without any any command, without any any um uh, any sort of Draw, he did this spontaneously. You see, when you have the fear of the Lord, that's what you do. Now, wouldn't that just change the churches of God today? Wouldn't that just change our testimonies? You see, we are a culture today in which we have to have accountability. That's a word we use. And it's called, you know, it's like we put a camera in the room. I'm watching you. And so we do our work because we're being watched. We're monitoring your computer. So we do our work because we're being watched. We solicit, we use accountability software to guard against uh, uh, inappropriate website searching. But wouldn't it be better if we feared the Lord and did the right thing all the time, every time? It is my suggestion to you and I that our Christianity is subpar for we don't fear the Lord. The thing that God noticed about Job was that he did the right thing without without concern of cost for the right reasons when no one would notice nor did he care for anyone to notice. That motivation, that worldview, is the right perspective. Now, saints, I would like to submit to us in our generation that one of the things we're missing is the fear of the Lord. Now, I haven't defined it yet, but I am describing it to you. All right, let's go over to its description. What time is it? Oh, good. There's the clock. We're good. We're good. We're good. Acts chapter 5. All right. Now, in Acts chapter 5, we have the first black eye in Christian history. Up to this point, things are moving and they are moving fast. We had, of course, the Lord Jesus in chapter 1, and he ascends up into heaven. And the disciples, I just love those guys. They're like this. Where'd he go? The angels say, what are you looking up in heaven? You look like a bunch of idiots. Loose translation. Go back to Jerusalem where he told you and wait for the Lord to send his spirit as he promised. They go, okay. I mean, I would have been going, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see the in the sky? I can't believe it, you know. They go, okay. They go back to the house, upper room, probably where they had the Last Supper. Pray, they, they were waiting along upon the Lord. And guess what happens? On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes in such an amazing fashion. You couldn't miss it. 
right? Wind, tongues like, like cloven fire over their heads. What is that anyway? You know, tongue on fire, split into... And, and then all of a sudden they start speaking in various dialects and languages, bonafide languages with syntax and grammar, all that stuff you hate to learn. And then they went out and they told everybody about Christ and they understood him in their language. Now that is what we call, this is an amazing moment because you remember the Tower of Babel or Babel, right? That was where God ha, or man came together and they were running, rebelling against God, actually probably where polytheism and idolatry really began. And, and they were going to ascend to the heavens, in other words, to the throne of God. That was their idea. Of course, no clue about how big heaven is. And so they're ascending. So God sees it. He confuses their languages so that in one moment he creates multiple people groups across the world that are united by one singular thing, language, which creates all the cultures today. So when there's sin and rebellion rampant against God, assaulting the throne of heaven, God in one move disperses the people of the earth. That's the story of Babel. But now when God wants to bring his message of salvation to the world in one move, he takes diversified people groups so they hear the same message in their language. Isn't that poetic? That is, I don't know what you think about God, but I actually think he's a genius. I mean, he's just so, so smart. I would have never done it like this. And all of a sudden... Boom, and now we're off to the races. We're galloping, and people are getting saved left and right, and people are hearing the word, and, and, and Peter's preaching like, he's, like he never gave a message in his life, and man, he's hitting a home run here and a home run there, and he's talking about the resurrection, and people go, oh, what do we do? Repent, and, and then they got together. They started to break bread together. They started to, to come together to, to uh, care for one another's needs. There's an arrest involved, and, and they get more emboldened. I mean, we are just running. This is fast-moving Christianity. People are so concerned about the other person, they'll sell their property. That means they sold every their 401k plan and they brought it over to the apostles. Now listen, there are many believers here. We're united in Christ. Give whatever they need. Just give it away. You decide. And that's where we come to Acts chapter 5. I mean, this was fantastic Christianity. And now we have the black eye. And you know what cures the black eye? Fear of the Lord. A certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his, uh, with, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and they kept back part of it, part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of it for yourself. Or keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control, own control? Why have you con- conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to God, but or not lied to men, but to God. And then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear. Here, see that? Great fear. Fear came upon all those who heard these things. All right, back up the tape. What happened? 
So Ananias comes, he and his wife, in collusion. That's a nice word today. We say you're in collusion. I don't think we ever came up with that word until recent politics. But anyway, they were in cahoots, and, and they decided to sell their property. That was, that was fine. And then they decided to bring a, 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 a less than 100% of the proceeds to the apostles. Now, that was not a problem because verse 4 says you could do what, what you wanted with it. But what the problem was, was that they were pretending as if it was the 100% of the sale price. In other words, they were uh, per- portraying more godliness, more sacrifice than what was really there. They should have just been honest with the sacrifice they were giving. And even in the New Testament, the Lord says, as each has been set in your own heart, you give out of the abundance of your heart. So you don't have to play this, this game now, in this moment of Christianity, of the, or Christian history, the gospel and the word of God is running, really running out of the gate at top speed. And now we have a moment where Satan steps in using the very individual who named the name of Christ, put it in his heart to lie. Now, there's one thing about God. He hates lying. He was a liar from the beginning, is what Jesus said of the devil. And so what he says, what he means by that is, It destroys the foundation of trust and faith by which you were saved. And so he's saying this is going to subvert the whole thing. And so he, uh, so Peter says to him, now listen, you have, you've not lied to me. You've not lied to John or James or any of the apostles. You've lied to the Lord. And it wasn't just your lie. It was uh, Satan is infiltrating espionage into the work of God right now. And so he dies. It's, it's interesting. It says, that it's very poetic. He breathes his last breath. Do you know how many people I've been around when they breathe their last breath? There's something sterilizing about that moment for you. The last person I was with who breathed their, breathed their last breath was my dad. And I've seen it over and over in my career. There's something about that moment that just absolutely paralyzes you, the living And it did so in the early church. Look at what it says. So great fear came upon all those who heard those things. What what great fear? Great fear of what? Peter? No. Uh, Great fear of lying? No. Great fear of the Lord. That's what was happening. Fear of the Lord. Now, the, the, the repeat episode happens with his wife. As you can see that she came in next and they said, tell us, verse 8, whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit? See, not only a lie to the Holy Spirit, it was trying to challenge the authority of the Holy Spirit. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Can you imagine hearing that? That's like your life flashing before your eyes right before you go. And then then the immediately she fell down at his feet breathed her last and the young men came in found her dead and carrying her out buried her by her husband which means outside the city verse 11 it says it twice almost exactly the same verbiage so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things you see that you see that it's so important, the fear of the Lord is so important that in the early church, it's, a, it's described as a, a game-changing event where God reestablishes this fear. And do you know what happens after that? Look at verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done. You know what we call that? Out, outgrowth of evangelism. They were done among the people and they were all with one accord. You know what we call that? Unity. 
So what am I saying to you? I'm saying the fear of the Lord is what we need to be evangelists and to have unity in the body. That's what I'm saying. And we're missing that. Do we have unity? Are we evangelistic? Then what are we missing? Well, we need more program. No, what we need is the fear of the Lord. That's what we need. And that's how we have to live. We're missing that, aren't we? Do you fear the Lord? Do you do you do things in such a way that you care about the mind and the opinion of God more than the moment, the opinion of my child concerning what I'm doing with the hundred dollars? No fear of the Lord. We need that. That's what's going to keep us uh, spontaneously away from sin. That's what's going to drive us to the feet of the Savior. That's what we're, that's why we're going to make this hundred K sacrifices for the sake of those who may have cursed God in their hearts. We'll be on our knees. We'll make intercession. We'll be in the Word of God because we care about the God of the universe who saved your soul. Where, what's wrong with us? We need the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. All right, my time is gone, so I'm going to skip past the next slide, and I want you to um, think with me about a definition. All right, so this is that moment in the message when the preacher says, finally, brethren, which are code words, as we all know, for you got about 10 more minutes. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Now, uh, there's a couple things you need to know. Number one, Paul is uh, giving practical direction to uh, um, the church at Colossae. And in so doing, he's now to the point, after a bunch of, not theory, but truth about our uh, oneness in Christ and his preeminence, he now gets to this point where he's going to tell someone so practical as the slave how to do their work. And in this discussion, he mentions the fear of the Lord. I'll read it to you. Verse 22, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. So you're here and you've got a master and so he's like over you and so he tells you to do what you're supposed to do. You do that. But don't do it because they're watching you. That's what it says. Not with eye service as man pleasers. You see, when I took that $100 back to Sam's Club, I was doing that because my son was watching me. My son was watching me. It was for eye service. It was to set a good example for him, which no one would say that's a bad example, but it's not the fear of the Lord. It's all kind of horizontal, even to my, my young son. And he says, now, I don't want you to be like that. Now, we all have been in workplaces where we've been around other coworkers who have done things for eye service, right? I was a, a, we call it the chief resident. In other words, I was in charge that day in the emergency department in my training. And I had a junior resident, and he came in, and for the first 30 minutes, he picked up x-rays and moved books. I said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. So, yeah, but see, your job is not to clean. Your job is to see patients. And if we don't see the patients, no one else is either. So I need you to go actually pick up those four over there and go see those patients, right? It was all for eye service, just for show. Just to act like you're being busy, but you're not really accomplishing what you're supposed to do. Anybody ever done that here before? 
<laughs> yeah, I have. Now, notice what he says next. Not with eye service as man fears, but in sincerity of heart, pleasing, fearing the Lord. You see that? That means that internally, there is something driving you that you would do the right thing because he's the right thing. That's what he's talking about. In sincerity, no secondary motives. Not to show you the right example. Not to give you the right look. Not to portray true Christianity. But because you care about the thinking and adoration and the exaltation of God in your life, of Christ in your soul, you will do those things. Now, brethren, that is the example. That's what you're supposed to be doing with that sincerity of heart. And whatever you do, do it heartily, not because you have to, because you want to. That's key. And then he says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward. That means this, that God is not like a terrible accountant. He can keep track of what you're doing, and he will not be a person's debtor. He will reward you, whether it's here or in eternity. It doesn't matter because he exists outside of time. So what's the definition? What's the definition of this concept. Looks like this. Oops. An ever-present God consciousness, a 24-7 God consciousness that holds him in adoring respect. Adoring respect. Heartily is to the Lord holds him in adoring respect as to who he is and what he's about, how he does things. Number two, it's with a loyal and humble heart. I didn't have a chance to expand the uh, definition by looking in Deuteronomy, but in the Deuteronomy passages, you'll find they, they mention this loyal heart, this humble heart, that you will do things in such a way that uh, uh, you will do his commands and there are other things that you will avoid doing. In other words, the heart issue is is driving it. And notice this last one, the third phase. Deepest of integrity and sincerity. That means that when no one is watching, you will do the right thing because the Savior's look matters to you. Can you, can you fathom how this changes, how we operate as elders, how we operate in our work as deacons or serving as in the in functions of deaconesses? Can you imagine how this affects our gospel work, how this affects our marriages, how it affects what we do in the workplace, how this fear of the Lord has a change in our function in our communities and our societies? And can you imagine how this changes the entire motif, the entire uh, work of God in his church where we are concerned only and solely about the honor and glory, adoring respect of our great Redeemer. Now that is what the church of God is to be. So, perhaps in the days and weeks ahead of you, for your 2021, the fear of the Lord will become your study. You'll start reading the Old Testament. You'll start reading Proverbs, the Psalms, the Psalms, the Prophets. And you'll start noticing the fear of the Lord. It is dripping with the fear of the Lord. Because I would submit to you, my beloved brothers and sisters, that's what we're missing. Father, this has only been a minor moment in which the Word of God has, I pray, been presented 
but oh, Father, am I so foolish to think that uh, it's been clear or it's been flawless? No, Father, I know so well that the Word of God will need the continued preaching, teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit for this body of believers in the days to come. I pray, O God, teach them the fear of the Lord and help the parents and grandparents to teach to the children and grandchildren the fear of the Lord. Help us to be a church, a body of believers that have unity because we fear the Lord, that have evangelism because we fear the Lord, that we are concerned about your uh, pleasure even to the point of thinking about what someone else or myself may have thought about you and our souls. No price will be too high for us. No sacrifice will be too great. Oh, develop within us this ever-present God consciousness, this ever-present awareness of who you are and what you are, so that with an absolute 100% loyalty, we with our integrity will obey you even to the tiniest detail. Oh God, could you create that in us? Could you give us that kind of heart? The kind of heart that the Lord Jesus had. That's all we're asking. In the blessed name of our Redeemer, amen.